Amen. <clears throat> oh, my name's Jonathan. We are, as many of you know, uh, in a series on Matthew. We're up to chapter 19. Uh, again, in the worship folder, you should have received an insert. On one side is the passage for the teaching this morning, and then on the other side is an outline. So I'd invite you to follow along. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Uh, there are uh, Bibles in the pew, and maybe some of you brought them from home. So, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's Word. Uh, Funny... Just story. This doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the sermon, but I saw this. I saw a, a, a verse from this passage used yesterday uh, in a, a really interesting way. Uh, as I'm driving up, kind of in the Kissimmee area, notice on the back of uh, an SUV, uh, you know, summertime. And I think in the summer, Disney does a lot of youth baseball tournaments and softball tournaments. And you know, how people write in shoe polish on the back of their car. And somebody had written, uh, I guess from Wewa Hitchka, which is up in the panhandle, Wewa eight and under all-stars, uh, you know, go team or something like that. And above it was Matthew 19.26, all things are possible. <laughs> A very terrible use of the passage or the verse, I might add. I wanted to stop them and chide them, but Jamie said no. Um, we're in a series, as I mentioned earlier, on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And we've been looking at what it means to become a disciple of Jesus for the last uh, several weeks, in fact. 
Uh, it's been hard. There have been a lot of hard-hitting passages, a lot of hard-hitting teachings, uh, and you've found yourself uh, probably going, wow, you know, maybe I never thought of that that way, or maybe I never even knew Jesus said that. Uh, and I know Drew has felt a pressure of, wow, these are hard things to say. Uh, give me courage, Lord. Uh, we've been discovering if Jesus is Lord, then he makes claim over every area of your life. He demands your total allegiance. Uh, but the irony of faith is that in Jesus, you've got to lose your life for his sake, and your life then becomes his. And then he says, that means you find true life. Uh, and we're in kind of a mini-series in the midst of a bigger series on discipleship. Last week, this week, and next week, we'll be looking at how Matthew and Jesus contrast the upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this world. And what he does is he uses children as a very deliberate illustration of simple faith, humble trust. In fact, last week we were warned, unless we are turned and become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. So the contrast is really between those who pursue greatness on their terms or on the world's terms and those who submit to the call of Jesus to take up our cross and experience true greatness. Uh, and so this week, Matthew, again, is going to use Jesus interacting with children. Uh, you saw it in the first three verses that I read. Uh, and really to contrast that with his interaction with the young man. So let me warn you again at the outset, these are tough realities that the passage is calling us to consider is no different from last week and the week before and the week before and the week before. I mean, you get my drift. This, is, this has been tough stuff. So what I'm going to try to do in, is frame our look at this passage or this teaching around the three questions uh, that are asked, two questions from the young man and one from the disciples. And another way to look at that is this, and if you notice on the outline, uh, we're going to look at the hollow disciple, that is, uh, someone with a divided heart. The, secondly, the perfect disciple, someone with an undivided heart. And then thirdly, uh, if, if that's what it means to be a disciple, then who can be saved? I mean, where's the power to follow Jesus like this come from? How do we get there? So, uh, just to start, we read verses 13, 14, and 15 really to help set up the story of the young man. Because it helps us understand the issues facing this man and us, okay? So first, as we come to the hollow disciple, the problem here, uh, <clears throat> notice the contrast even in the approach of the children and the young man to Jesus. The children were brought, right? They didn't bring themselves, they were brought. The man brings himself. The children come in order to be blessed. The man approaches Jesus and poses a question. As if, you know, can I just get some information out of you? Right? Almost like you're a tool for me. Whereas the children are brought simply to receive something that they know they can't do on their own. They can't get on their own. They just come to Jesus and say, or actually their parents do, but please, Rabbi, bless our children. The man really seems to come on presumptuous grounds and the children are brought to receive from Jesus. Yet the first words out of this man's mouth are really telling. You'll notice that verse 16 uh, is, is where that is. He says, first words out of his mouth, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I mean, he meets Jesus, and that's the first thing out of his mouth. It's telling. His question really fits the common assumption of Jews in Jesus' day, actually, 
they really believed eternal life is to be found by what I must do rather than by what I am. He was of the opinion that the way into life with God is the path of doing good in some form. And his problem was he was sure that entrance to eternal life was within his grasp if he only knew how to go about it. So, let's be honest. Most of us, we deal with life very similarly. The question posed by this man is characteristic of every human heart's default mode, right? If there's a problem, I find out how to fix it. Problem solved. And I'm classic, you know, at this, especially when it comes to my wife. You know, if there's a problem, she says, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not feeling well, or my, my, my stomach hurts, or I'm afraid one of the kids might be getting sick, or, you know, the, the, the car doesn't start right. Well, what do you want me to do about that? Well, you know, obviously I need to fix the problem. I need to go and find a solution. So for us, and for this man, if, if the issue is eternal life, then as long as I can figure out how to get it, I'm good. Now think about this. This man knows that at the end of his life, it will either be eternal life or eternal death. He's at least realistic about that. He knows that there's only two destinations. And obviously life sounds far more pleasant. So tell me, teacher, what do I need to do to get that? How can I go about getting that? And every religious system of the world, in fact, except Christianity, approaches their eternal destiny in the same way. What good things do I need to do to perform in order to gain eternal life? Because at the end of the day, what I'm banking on is my performance. That's what matters. Doing good things will produce good results in the hereafter. A good illustration of this is the the Hindu idea of karma, right? What goes around comes around. If I live a moral life now, performing my duties and keeping the right commandments, I'll reap positive rewards in the end, but also vice versa. So watch out. You know, be careful. The problem is this approach to religion can easily turn into a compartmentalized approach to life. I keep my religious duties, but only to get some reward in another life. There's really no connection, no depth, no, no seeping into my everyday living. So my character really isn't affected. I'm simply going through the motions. And most people who live like this are profoundly insecure. They're fearful. They're critical of those who don't do all the right moral things. Because you can't ever be sure you've done enough. And, you know, you may not know this, but uh, Islam teaches that Allah, who is God, is very whimsical, he's very capricious. I mean, you never really know if you've done enough. So hijacking an airliner and running it into the side of a building and killing three, four, five thousand people, you're hoping that it, when you open your eyes on the other side, You can see paradise and you've done enough. But even at the instant those guys are going into that building, all of them are, praise be to Allah, please let me get there, Allah. They're not even sure. Even at that moment, they're not even sure. And it causes people to do really strange, crazy, atrocious things. Jesus is only He can, answers this young man according to his understanding of things. He says, if you want life, keep the commandments. But because you can't ever be too careful, especially when your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, he says, well, which ones? Right? I mean, it really is almost comical. You know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? Give me me some specifics. And I love Jesus 
Because he's gently leading, he's pastoring this guy toward a conclusion. He's leading him to unveil the shallowness of his faith, the hollowness of of his understanding of discipleship. He points to commands from the so-called second table of the Ten Commandments, right? Everybody see that? Look uh, there at at verse uh, 18 and following, 19 as well. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Honor your father and your mother. Underneath Jesus' listing, though, is the implication that you can't keep all of these that he's just listed without keeping the first half of the law. And everybody knows what the first commandment is, right? If you don't, let me say it for you. You shall have no other gods before me. So you can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you first love God above all else. And Jesus, in brilliant Jesus fashion, sets this guy up. The young man thinks he's kept all the commands that Jesus mentions, but we're going to see in a minute how exposed he is. In fact, he hasn't kept the first half of the law, which is loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. His question reveals his divided heart. How empty his understanding of what it means to follow Jesus is. So what does is, what is the perfect disciple look like? Jesus tells this man, secondly, that he's without the one thing necessary for complete discipleship. Nothing. He hasn't yet reached the point where he has submitted completely or wholeheartedly to the Master. He's not approached Jesus on his knees, which shows a posture of weakness and humility. This is getting at the essence of discipleship. If Jesus is Lord, then He owns me and all I have. He demands an undivided heart. Uh, Our call to worship from Psalm 86 is translated like this out of the Message uh, Bible. "Train, uh, Train me, God, to walk straight, then I'll follow your true path. Put me together, one heart and mind, then undivided I'll worship you in joyful fear. If my heart's loyalty isn't wholly set on Jesus and His mission, then it's divided. That's what makes Jesus' word so profound. He says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be undivided, if you want to be whole, then you have to let go of that which is keeping you from following me. And the guy's answer to, or excuse me, Jesus' answer to the question, what do I still lack, is, you lack having nothing. I mean, this man never heard anything like that before in his life. If we're honest, you and I, the same way. If there's a problem, what do I need? What tools do I need to get to fix that problem, to solve that issue, to finish that project? We never approach a scenario from, uh, what, what am I lacking? What can I go into? Well, how can I go into the situation with less than I need? Okay, that doesn't seem very effective or efficient or productive. Bill Gates did not build a multi-gazillion dollar worldwide empire by approaching it from, what do I need to lack? Right? Apple doesn't approach a, an antenna problem by, oh, just figure it out. You can do, you can do without the bars. No. We're going to come up with a software update. That's not the way our world works. If we're honest, that's not the way we work either. It's so ironic that Jesus would answer this way because this man was used to solving problems. He knows 
something is missing. And he wants Jesus to say, go do something. Go complete a task. What does Jesus do? He tells him to do two things. First, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Then come follow me. And the two can't be separated as if charity were enough to make him perfect. It's not as though the man's obedience would be perfect if he would just take a vow of poverty and, and, and impoverish himself. Let's be careful not to say that all true Christians take vows of poverty. Like, you can't be a Christian unless you're poor. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying if you have any significant measure of wealth, which, by the way, is a relative term anyway, that you aren't saved. Adopting a simple, meager lifestyle or intentionally not ever having much money, that can become a source of self-righteous idolatry just as easily as riches can. So we've got to be careful as we think about this because the issue is not charity, it's discipleship. It's almost as if he is saying, go and sell your possessions in order that you can follow me because they're the one thing standing in the way of you following me. But why does he add, come follow me after that? And listen to this because this is frightening. The implication is that the man wasn't following him prior to this. So it's possible to keep the law and be a good, moral, upright person and not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that really humbles me to consider because, you know, how often am I tempted to just approach my life in ways of right and wrong, do's and don'ts, and if I'm always on this side over here, the right side, the do side, the moral side, I'm going to be okay. Remember the commandments Jesus lists? He says, They're summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. And this young man is convinced he's kept them all. But that's not true obedience. In fact, at its root, it's empty. One commentator says this, Keeping the individual commandments is no substitute for the readiness for self-surrender to the absolute claim of God imposed through the call of the gospel. Jesus' summons in this context means that true obedience to the law is rendered ultimately in discipleship. You can't keep the second half of the Ten Commandments without obeying the first. The young man's failure to keep this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is revealed. His wealth was his God. In fact, his wealth had his heart. And when the very thing that grips your heart is threatened, it's devastating. It, 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 it's like your whole life falls to pieces. And you see that in this man. Because when Jesus goes after the very thing that his heart is so attached to, the thing that his, that his fist is, is so wrapped around, he won't let go. When Jesus goes after that, what's his response? He walks away sorrowful. And the word really means that he's at a loss. So the guy who has everything walks away from the Lord of the universe at a loss. Because Jesus calls him to renounce everything that he's come to truly value. His problem was that he thought he could keep God's commandments and still hold on to the very thing that he clung to for his identity. His identity was not in the Lord. It was in his stuff. Notice Jesus tells him that letting go of the very stuff keeping him from wholehearted devotion will result in treasure in heaven. You can't serve God and mammon. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus tells the crowd, no one can serve two masters. You'll either serve the one, love the one, hate the other, or vice versa. You can't do it. He's telling this wealthy young man and us the same thing several chapters uh, later in the Gospel. How many of us are spending time and energy trying to serve two masters? In Luke uh, 14, verse 33, Jesus says something very sobering. And I've read it before, but it's one of those times where, you know, kind of like last week when Drew was talking about the angels. And, you know, have you ever read that before? No, I've never heard that before. Well, how many times have you read through the Gospel of Matthew? Oh, I don't know, 20? I mean, we went to seminary for crying out loud. And we didn't read that verse. I don't remember that verse. And I've read Luke several times, but Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, you don't have the ability to be my disciple. Literally, we are incapable unless we turn away from all our stuff. He demands absolute allegiance. If that's true, then the call to follow him is so massively challenging. I mean, it is such a high bar. He makes makes these amazing demands, these ridiculous claims over our life when we read them and we go, wow, I just, I can't do that. If we're honest, many of us will walk away from here today the same way the young man walked away. Sorrowful, bummed, depressed. Because God has done some heart surgery to us. And what we find there, we really don't like. There's no indication that this man ever came back to Jesus. Some scholars uh, think that it may be some guy who became a disciple later on, blah, blah, blah. The, The point is, his interaction with Jesus produces a sorrowful response, and he walks away. So, if that's the call then who can be saved? Uh, Among the Jews in Jesus' day, the common assumption regarding wealth was that it was a sign of God's blessing. Okay, Wealth and material prosperity were seen as evidence of God's approval. He was obviously blessing your business affairs if you were a wealthy person. So once again, you can imagine the shock of his disciples when he tells this wealthy man to get rid of it. I mean, get... Get inside the story for just a second. The disciples are sitting there watching this, and he says to this wealthy young man, go sell your stuff. What? I mean, they were absolutely shocked because he's talking as if his stuff is a hindrance to his following Jesus. So while he's got their undivided attention, he looks at that, he says two very troubling things. He says, a rich person will enter the kingdom, but with difficulty. In fact, it's easier to get a camel threaded through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person into God's kingdom. Wow. But, but, but that's impossible, right, Jesus? Once again, Jesus using uh, our favorite uh, device, sarcasm, hyperbole, uh, exaggeration. But he's doing it on purpose. He's doing it to make the point. Uh, A a New Testament scholar named Leon Morris 
said this, and I, I had to write it down and read it to you because it was just very, very good. He says, it's all too easy for most of us to be so wrapped up in what we own that we find it difficult to face the prospect of doing without it. Uh, <clears throat> my MacBook. Okay, if I'm honest, and some of you remember, uh, I think the, the uh, Lambert boys remember, or, well, David does, he, he came in and gave me a hard time one time about this. You know, maybe it was back in the fall, I was talking about coveting, talking about idolatry, and I was talking about how I love to get online and look at, you know, Apple products and things like that. Uh, and I was being serious. I mean, those things at times, those gadgets, those electronics, that stuff really captures me. Wow. If I could just have that. And if I went home and, and, and you know, one of my children or the dog or something had dropped my MacBook or it fell in the toilet or what, I'd be devastated. I'm not kidding. That reveals the sinfulness, the blackness of my heart. How silly is that? So, in the abstract, let me continue, sorry for the aside there. In the abstract, we approve of the challenge of Jesus. We recognize that people we regard as rich all too easily come to rely on their wealth. Now listen to this. But seeing that that applies to us too is another matter. And that is the difficulty the young man encountered. Whatever our wealth great or small, it can tempt us to self-sufficiency. Okay? So I know wealth is really relative. But I want you to know if you're in this room and you own a car, you're in the top 3 or 4%, higher than that, of the richest people in the world. If you own a car. And yet, we are so tempted to rely on that stuff. Jesus' statements are so utterly countercultural to the Jews of his day that the disciples' reaction says it all. They were literally struck out of their senses. They were dumbfounded. They were flabbergasted. It says they were greatly astonished, but that really does, it is almost like they were having an out of body experience. Did he just say what we think he just said? So if the rich aren't in, then who is? And here comes. The best part. Matthew says Jesus fixes his gaze on the disciples and he utters the best news of the whole passage. He says, you can't, but God can. The salvation is wholly dependent on God's action, not on man's achievement. The approach of the young man, what must I do, is completely incompatible with Jesus' understanding of salvation. God isn't limited He can save anybody, rich or poor, slave or free, white or black, man or woman, American or Arab, and believe it or not, Republican or Democrat. I know that's hard to believe, but he can. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Don't miss this, though. Don't miss this. The context of his statement is in reference to salvation. He's saying, anyone who comes to me in faith, renouncing all that they have, can be saved. God can overcome any hard heart. He can change the one you think is unchangeable. And if there's someone in your life, you've been praying for them for years, I just don't think they're ever going to get there. Let me reassure you, God can. He can overcome any hard heart. He can save anyone. 
What would it look like for a group of people to live with, with that kind of hope, with that kind of confidence in the work of God to accomplish for us what we ask Him to accomplish, for, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves? Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. And the wonder of the gospel is that because Jesus Christ was willing to come and part with everything of value to Him, because He was willing to lose His very life, you and I can gain Him. We're admitted into the kingdom. We gain life to the fullest. And in, in the assurance of pardon that Barry referred to even in his prayer, Paul says in Colossians 2, you've been filled in Him. I mean, I read that again this week. How many times have we read Colossians? Reading along. Oh my goodness, it says, I've been filled in Him. We can gain life to the fullest. I want to say this, if you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, what are you holding on to that's keeping you from wholehearted discipleship? For the young man in this passage, it was his possessions. But in what areas are you trying to please God or win approval from God by your obedience? My invitation to you, my plea to you is to to search your heart. Look Look inside, deep inside, to see what is it that's standing between me and obeying the call. Come follow me. But if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, maybe you're unsure of, of whether you are, you're somewhere in the middle there, Jesus is telling us, point blank, get this, point blank, He's telling us that entrance into the kingdom of God, or salvation, through hard work or keeping all the rules is impossible. He says, with man, this is impossible. You can be as moral and as good as you want. It will never be enough. There will always be this lingering question in the back of your mind. What do I still lack? What haven't I done? What do I need to do that I haven't done already? I mean, this was this, this, was this man. The good news is, the promise of God in the gospel is if you submit to Him by faith... He'll give you a new heart. And with that new heart comes a power to hand over all other allegiances. A power to forsake everything you once held of value. True discipleship means your heart, your whole heart, is captured by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And as He grows in value, everything else shrinks in comparison. And all those things you once held dear and and, and held on to so tightly your hands start to loosen up, loosen up, loosen up. And pretty soon those things are, are out of your hands and they're, they're flowing freely. And the blessing that you are getting from God is then turning around and being used as a blessing to other people. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. We're, we're going to get to this later in our series on Matthew. But he tells a parable of the kingdom is compared to a treasure in a field that a man found when he... When he, when, he, when he found it, he, he went and bought the field. He, he gave everything he had to buy that field. And why? Because he was so filled with joy that he found that treasure. And if you compare the, how the gospel produces joy in the heart with the reaction of this young man, we're left asking the question, what is of greatest value to you? Is it the kingdom? Or is it something else? Uh, Let's pray as we close for a greater understanding of what Jesus 
means when he says, come follow me. And let's pray that by the Spirit we'd have the courage to renounce everything else uh, for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the call to follow you is great. It is a demand of everything. And we, we stand here to readily confess our, our fear, our unwillingness, our disobedience to obey that call, and we, we ask you to forgive us. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would produce in our hearts such a, a, such a sense of our neediness that we would recognize Jesus' answer to the question that what you lack is, is nothing. And that a daily prayer of our hearts would be what we just sang a few minutes ago. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I pray that, Father, by your grace, you would produce in us hearts that are grateful, hearts that are uh, completely and utterly captivated by your glory and beauty, and that that would produce a life of beautiful works, and that you would receive much glory as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The good news is that if that seems overwhelming, uh, if the call of Jesus to renounce all that you have or you can't, you don't have the ability to be his disciple, sounds overwhelming, good news is uh, that you go with a good word, you go with a blessing over you, which is the promise of his power and presence to go to accomplish that work in you. Uh, so, So take heart, be encouraged by that, and go with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace.